Well, hey, everyone. Good morning, and welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Res City, and I just want to offer you a special welcome if you are joining us for the first time on the Sunday morning in any way, whether here in person or online. We always love to get a sh- give a shout out to our online uh, community of people who are watching from home. So what I want to do is I want to, uh, we're going to wrap up this sort of mini-series in the book of Job that we've been going through uh, here. Um, and so I'm about to get into it. I want to pray before we get started. So if you'd please just uh, close your eyes, bow your heads with me in prayer as we prepare our hearts to um, go and hear the words that God has for us. Father, we thank you for giving us uh, your words of scripture, the, the ones that you um, allow us to, to have so we can read, so we can come to know you, we can come to know wisdom better, um, and ultimately we, we, we can come to know your son better. Lord, help us as, uh, and guide us as we walk through all of that today. Um, meet us here in this place through your spirit uh, to give us wisdom and guidance and, and revelation for your son. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know if you guys have followed this uh, at all lately. It's, it's a few weeks old at this point now, but um, Cinnamon Toast Crunch um, has been in the news recently. And uh, the reason is because um, a comedian, if you, if you haven't heard about this, it's kind of a big deal on Twitter for a few days. Uh, a comedian, um, the, wor- the, the, the last worst person in the world that you'd want this to happen to if you're a Cinnamon Toast Crunch, um, is eating his Cinnamon Toast Crunch one Sunday or one morning and um, some shrimp tails fall out of the, the box when he's pouring it into his cereal. And naturally, he's very confused, so he goes to Twitter to post about it. He tags Cinnamon Toast Crunch in it. Um, and our, our community group has had a lot of fun following this, you can tell. So, so we're going to get into this a little bit here. Um, but um, they, 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 they po- he posts about this on, uh, on Twitter. He tags Cinnamon Toast Crunch. So, so naturally, Cinnamon Toast Crunch is like, well, we should probably respond to this, right? We should probably, you know, this is kind of trending on Twitter. We don't want people thinking every time that they, you know, go to the store and buy a box of Cinnamon Toast Crunch, they can expect to find shrimp tails in it. So they get in touch with this guy, and, and they actually make it worse. <laughs> and he starts kind of posting some of his correspondence with the company uh, about, it to the, you know, the joy of everybody who's sort of watching this. And it even gets to a point where eventually the, um, uh, whoever is contacting him from the company is suggesting, why don't you bring the fishtails to the police so we can you know, get it verified that they're actually fishtails. It, it got pretty crazy, right? And so this was obviously a source of, of a lot of enjoyment for everyone else watching, even though probably a lot of people at Cinnamon Toast Crunch were pretty terrified throughout, throughout all of it. Um, and so it, it's humorous, but if you think about it, it's kind of a, a disappointing response from the company, right, to sort of, to sort of come out and, and give this as the response to that thing. Um, now, to put it lightly, in the book of Job, Job has gotten shrimp tails in his cereal, and he's a little upset about it. Um, and he wants God to get in touch with him, like Cinnamon Toast Crunch reached out to this comedian. And ultimately, if you've been following our series, you know that what happened to Job was kind of outside of his control. It wasn't fair to him. And he's looking for coherence and 
uh, you know, certainty in a situation. He wants it to make sense, right? Because every, you know, what, what, what's been going on behind the scenes has been hidden from him. He doesn't know why he has found himself in this horrible situation, and he's trying to make sense of it, and, he, and he's kind of asking God for, the, for, for, that, for that, to kind of come and validate his coherence or his certainty, and, and I think at one level, we can totally understand this, right? When we find ourselves in a situation where things don't make sense, we want it to make sense. We want coherence in it. I think that's a natural, normal uh, human thing for it. Now, for Job, the way that he wants it to make sense is to try to root it in this idea of fairness. He feels like he's got an unfair uh, result. And scholars call what he's trying to root his, his understanding of a situation in something called the retribution principle. We brought this up a few different times. Um, essentially, it's this view uh, that, that Job has that we, you know, you can, you can read scripture and you can kind of come to this conclusion that God um, automatically blesses the righteous in proportion to their righteousness or their wisdom, and he punishes the wicked in proportion to their wickedness. And that's just how God works. That's how the world is set up. Now, Job wants this all to make sense. He wants this fairness that he, how he thinks the world is run, how he thinks God runs the world um, in every single situation, including his own. He wants that to be applied to what he's going through. And it sort of turns him to this sort of unhealthy inward focus as if his plight is really all that matters in the world. And throughout the book, Job and his three friends that we talked about a few weeks ago, and even a character named Elihu, who we just, because of the the way that our our series is structured, we're just not going to have time uh, to get into what he has to say. But all of these people are kind of coming, and they're kind of speaking on behalf of God, or they're speaking about God, or in Job's case, they're trying to get God to come speak to them. And throughout all of it, so most of the book, God has been silent. So it's just been these people talking. Now eventually though, at the very end of the book, and this is what we're gonna talk about today, Job gets what he wants. God does show up at the end of the book, but it's not really the, you know, the encounter with God that Job maybe is expecting or thinks he's entitled to, right? And, and so like, unlike Cinnamon Toast Crunch, when they show up to respond, there's no disappointment there, right? For, on the part of Job and the part of us as readers. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna unpack God's response to Job and we're gonna ask ourselves, what does this teach us about wisdom, right? This has been the series that we've been in this spring is sort of unpacking this biblical idea of wisdom and how it applies to our lives through walking through these different books of the Bible that sort of work together to sort of sharpen and enhance our view of what wisdom is. And Job is kind of uh, you know, putting a bookend in a sense on a lot of things that we've talked about. Now when God does show up, you, we might expect him to say something like, whoa, Job, you know, settle down, man. It's okay. It's okay. I'm really sorry about everything that happened. Really big misunderstanding here. You weren't privy to it, but it's actually because you're so awesome that all this stuff happened to you. And um, that's not what, what God says when he, when he comes to, to Job here. So let's get into to God's response here. Here's what he starts out by saying. Then the Lord answered Job from the Okay, what's the word here? A whirlwind. Okay, so God shows up in a whirlwind here to talk to Job. Okay, that gives you a sense of where God's at with how he feels like Job has been uh, portraying him throughout this. And he's like, 
I'm going to ask the questions now. You can feel free to chime in if you have something valuable to say. He says, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you now and you must answer them. And jumping ahead uh, in, in chapter 40, verse eight, God says, will you discredit my justice and condemn me just to prove you are right? So he charges Job by saying, you've gone so far here that you've thrown me under the bus, right? You, you are so convinced you're right. Your, your, your quest for coherence, for certainty in what's going on here, you wanted it so badly you were willing to throw me under the bus here. And he offers this challenge to Job, and this is what a commentator named Derek Kidner says. He says, God is enlarging Job's horizon, and he reassures him that his maker is unimaginably wise and of infinite resource, but it will also bring home to him, this is Job, that his ash heap is not the center or circumference of the world, and that his perplexing role is intertwined with that of innumerable others. So essentially, Things are far more complex than Job could have imagined, right? In his sort of base level, really simplistic view of the way that the world is. And God is going to talk to Job about that. So remember, he's in a whirlwind, okay? So, so get that picture in your head. And, and from the whirlwind, this is what God says to Job. It's a, it's a lot, so we're not gonna go through and read it all line by line, but I wanna sum it up for you in case um, you're unfamiliar with, with this. So what God does is he weaves this vast tapestry of just some of the things in the universe that he sustains by his wisdom and his power, Uh, from the great and lofty and mysterious, the stars and the constellations, the thing far above us, the things that we, uh, we only view from the ground here, to the observable yet brilliant structures in place to ensure that life continues here on earth. Things like rain and snow, the things that fall to give us water, that allow uh, food to grow up for us to eat, these things that sort of sustain life cycles in the whole world. God is is sustaining this stuff. He goes back to the beginning of creation, and he he brings out, uh, like for example, how he put limits on the sea. He said to the sea, you will go this far, but no further. Right? He, he said that the sea will live in one place and the land will be in another. He kept the chaos of the sea from overtaking the space that humans and animals would live on. This is what he sustains. And then God goes even to the smaller and more intimate workings of animal life. He talks about mountain goats finding shelter for their night, uh, a mother ostrich tending to her eggs. All right, the, 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 this vast tapestry of everything that is going on in the world that God is sustaining by his wisdom and power that Job really has you know, no clue how it all works. Now if God were, were you know, if, if this were taking place today, I was trying to think, how can we root this in a way that helps us to understand well? Because obviously we, we live in a time where our understanding of the universe is definitely greater than Job's, right? We, we do understand the way that the world works better uh, than Job does. But that doesn't mean that we are somehow you know, we know everything about the world, that, that somehow we've arrived at this place where we can kind of turn it back on God and say, oh, actually, we do know how this stuff works, right? So if God were saying this today, he might talk about something called quantum mechanics. Now, I'm just gonna give you a caveat here. I'm a pastor, which means I'm a generalist, which means I have to, like, get a, you know, I don't know much about a lot of, th- I know a, l- a little bit about a lot of things, but I don't know a lot about, you know, small things. And quantum mechanics definitely falls into that category. So I'm going to try to explain quantum mechanics to you as best I can, but 
Google it for yourself or find a friend who maybe knows this even more than I do, okay? Um, but, but quantum mechanics, the smartest scientists in the world, they study this stuff, all right? It, it, is, for, it is for really smart people who study these, these things. But here's the conundrum with it, and, and I've seen this a lot of different places. Uh, and this is from a New York Times uh, opinion article called Even Physicists Don't Understand Quantum Mechanics. And this is from a physicist and no, Nobel laureate named Richard Feynman. And he says, this is the quote that stood out to me, I think we we can safely say that nobody really understands quantum mechanics, <laughs> right? You'd think that you know, quantum mechanics scientists would understand the field that they study, but apparently they don't, all right? When you really look into it, that, that, that's, that's, the, that's the case. And apparently quantum objects, these really minuscule, tiny things that are the building blocks of the universe, they have different rules to them that, and we don't really understand them. This is super weird, but apparently when we observe them, they have certain rules, and when we don't observe them, they have completely different ones, which is really mind-blowing when you think about it, right? What's special about ob observation that sets it apart from you know, the normal stuff that they're doing? Um, a couple quotes from, from, from the article here. The whole thing is preposterous. <laughs> that's, what, that's what one guy says. Um, he asks, is consciousness somehow involved in the basic rules of reality? Like, we just don't know. We just don't know. And, and, and it leads the author of the article to say this. Quantum mechanics is the most fundamental theory we have, sitting squarely at the center of every serious attempt to formulate deep laws of nature. If nobody understands quantum mechanics, nobody understands the universe. And we don't understand quantum mechanics, which means we really don't understand, at the base level, how the universe itself works. Okay, think about that, that is pretty insane. And really when you kind of read it back on Job, that's what is being said there. Now the interesting thing, and this was in the article too, is that the scientists who study all this, they're actually surprisingly okay with it. Like they, they kind of are okay living within that world. And the, in, again, in the article, few modern physics departments have researchers working to understand the foundations of quantum theory. On the contrary, students who demonstrate the, an interest in the topic are gently, but firmly, maybe not so gently sometimes, steered away from it. They're basically just told, you know, don't even bother trying, right? It's really something we just can't understand. And, and, and th so th there's this understanding, there's this humility that we don't know. And there's a piece about it in, in the community that studies this, which I think is really interesting. This is the place that God is trying to get Job to come to with his circumstance, I think. A peace with not having full understanding of everything that's going on. And his point to kind of trotting all these things out as a rhetorical question to Job is that Job, he can't answer God's questions, okay, because he's not God, right? So he can't sort of fill the gap. He can't explain to God how all this stuff works, how a coherent understanding of the universe uh, should, should, should run. And being un unable to comprehend as creator, Job can't claim to offer a system. He can't claim to offer coherence that can wisely make sense of or runs God, runs God world. Okay, so here's an example, a good example of this. Job's perception, right, his coherence that he's put on the world, his certainty, is that the world runs, including, in a sense, natural laws, or the, you know, like, um, the biology in the world, on this idea of fairness that we talked about, this retribution principle. He kind of thinks everything should work according to it, right? The righteous get good stuff from God, and the unrighteous get bad stuff from God. And so if he's suffering, as an innocent person, which he's right about, there's some glitch in the matrix or God's not holding up his end of the bargain. 
But God points out to him that his way of getting coherence, even if it's a right idea, right? Fairness, justice, the, the idea that God rewards those who are good and, and allows you know, uh, punishment to come on those who are wicked. Those are, those are right ideas of God. It's still faulty in the way that Job is, is kind of um, putting everything together. And there's a ex- good example of this in Job 38, uh, verses 25 to 27. So God asks him, who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm? To water a land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert. To satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass. So what God is saying here is that if fairness was all the world was about, then all of the resources of the world, everything that God was doing to sustain life on earth would be directed towards just uh, rewarding the innocent or the righteous. The rain would only fall on the good people. It wouldn't ever fall on the bad people. There'd be no reason for it to fall in places like deserts where there's no good or bad people. It's just completely neutral. God says, you know the world couldn't really work like that, right? Like, there, that, that wouldn't make sense. The uninhabited places would get none, there would be none for animals and plants, these things that don't do good and bad things and aren't innocent or, or, or wicked or any of those things. And ultimately, I think going a little bit further, it really leaves no room for stuff like grace, for undeserved favor from God, things that come on people who are actually undeserving, but God still sustains them anyway because he does love the world. He does want to see people flourish despite the fact that they do mess up. And God's like, hmm, I guess you didn't really think of that, did you, Job, right? Maybe in the way, you know, you're trying to structure the universe according to the way you think it should run, that didn't cross your mind. And so that ends the first round of questioning, but God actually keeps going with Job. So back to the whirlwind here, okay? God is questioning Job again. And he introduces um, these two really intriguing, interesting uh, figures in the book named Behemoth and Leviathan. Now, these two figures are the subject of a lot of uh, speculation and question. We don't have a lot of time to unpack them fully. I know growing up, I read some stuff that said these were dinosaurs. One was a brontosaurus and one was a mosasaurus, these great sea monster that lived in the water. I was a big dinosaur nerd as a kid, so I was really into parts of the Bible that talked about dinosaurs, apparently. Um, but that's probably you know, not the right way to understand what's going on here. Instead, um, more likely, the Leviathan, um, specifically, this is a character actually we show up in the Bible in other places as well, in the Psalms uh, and some other places. Um, the Leviathan is this sort of sea monster from myth. We actually find this, this sea monster in other uh, ancient Near East um, writing uh, of the time. This, this ancient sea monster that kind of represents the chaos of the sea. And so the Leviathan and the behemoth are these forces that sort of exist on the the fringes of creation, but that malign it, that sort of exercise their chaotic, destructive power uh, within the limits that God sets. One commentator I read called them, just think of them as chaos creatures, you know, animals that come that, are, that Job cannot do anything to, right? They, they seem to threaten God's control, but God says, they're within, I, they're within the limits that I set, okay? They're rampaging, they're chaos that seems to be going on in the world. It's, it's still within limits that I'm, I'm putting them in. But Job, you can't put limits on these things, right? You can't put waders on, get your little fishing pole and a couple beers, head out to a fun day at the lake and catch Leviathan. You can't do that, all right? But I can, Okay, there's a fundamental difference between us. And so Job can't do anything to sort of contain this chaos because he doesn't even really understand it. 
Now, as we think about these creatures and their impact on the world, and on us, really, I want you to think of a garden, right? We've been using this, uh, this, this metaphor analogy of a garden for a lot of our um, series in, in the Book of Wisdom. We've talked about how wisdom is like sowing in a garden, and we should, you know, we should trust that when we do put wisdom into something, that we can expect to see fruit grow from it. But the thing about gardens is that a lot of times you do put a lot of work into it, Right, and, and you know what you're doing, you, you've done the work, but rabbits and deer, these pests like to come in and mess with all of it, right? And you can do certain things to try to stop them, but they're annoying, crafty little creatures. We put a fence up around our yard and the rabbits chewed through it, okay? Like, I don't know why they would even sell this stuff at a store if rabbits could just chew their way through it, but that's what we found happened to us, so we've got to go to the drawing board and find another way to stop these things. And the point is this, no matter the work that we put into our garden, these things are gonna come in and kind of mess with it, right? D- despite our wisdom, despite our sort of work uh, in trying to grow this lush garden, right? To, to go back to the beginning of the Job series, we talked about cucumbers, to try to grow nice cucumbers, not round ones, right? Well, that, that's, that's the goal, that's the goal. But the point is that these things kind of exist outside of our ability to control them. They kind of come in and no matter what type of wisdom we put into them, uh, into our garden, it's still gonna get messed up at times from these pests. That's not true of God, though. And here, to kind of come back to these chaos creatures, these things that kind of come in, throw a wrench into things, when we get into that line of thinking, it takes us right back to the very beginning of the book of Job, right? Because remember, there's a character whose involvement in what's going on Job never brings up because he has no clue that this character was actually at the, kind of at the start of everything that unfurled in the book of Job. And that's the character of the Satan that we talked about in that first sermon. Now we talked about how you know, we're not 100% sure who this character is, but if it is the devil, you know, the, 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 the person who arrives kind of more fully formed in the New Testament, it would certainly fit a description of, of that person that they would be a chaos creature, right? Coming in and sort of, operating in a way that is trying to malign and ruin gardens of of people's wisdom, right? Um, And and much of Jesus' compassionate ministry to the suffering, to people who are like Job, finding themselves in the midst of suffering. When Jesus does come, when you read the Gospels, there's far more interaction with the Satan and demons and these sort of spiritual forces of evil then I think we tend to realize, or we certainly tend to think of op- as operating in our own time and place. And so while God sets limits and nothing is happening outside of his control, there are still in operation these, you know, these dark, shadowy, mysterious forces that do want to see harm done in the world. And our perception of them is very limited, right? At best, it's like you're standing on a windy day or, and you think you hear a voice and you turn around and you don't see anything at all. Right? Most of the work of these things are completely unknown to us, completely hidden to us, except in some maybe extreme cases. But I think the Bible would have us believe that these things influence systems, they bring harm in the world, they are really responsible for a lot of division, strife, injustice, things we're experiencing, systemic racism in the world right here. That is demonic stuff, you guys. Right? There's a lot more behind that, I think, than we realize. Um, but we have no ability to comprehend it. Now, if your thought to all that is, don't be silly, Joel. We, we know those spiritual forces don't exist. I would just say, well, the whole point of Job here is humility. We don't understand how things work as well as we do, right? Uh, be a little bit more open-minded. I think 
Part of the problem here is that at, you know, Western Enlightenment thinkers, like every single person in this room and, and probably watching online here is, we're some of the most closed-minded people out there probably, if you really think about it a lot of times. If something that we've learned growing up you know, doesn't fit that system, we're pretty quick to dismiss it. And I think we ought to take from this, like we should be a little bit more humble. I'm not trying to say the devil's behind everything, but I do want to point out that this is sort of beyond our knowledge. But here is the, is the point, right, of, of the whole thing, is that it's not incompatible with God's wisdom. And these forces of chaos, they still fall within God's limits and not outside of his control. And bringing it back to Job, again, the point is that Job is sort of left grasping for air when he thinks he can tell God, hey, you've made some mistake here. Something's not right, and you, you owe me this. So ultimately here, here's our takeaway, I think. God has sort of painted this picture of a world where total coherence, total certainty, total sense of everything, these things that we understandably crave, that we want to have, especially when things are really difficult and really hard, they're just not possible for us, okay? We are not God. We cannot understand the complexity of everything going on around us, the way in which our lives are bound together with the lives of so many other people and so many other things in the world. We just can't comprehend it. And so while we're told to desire wisdom, that's what this whole series has been about, is trying to learn and live wisdom. Um, Wisdom isn't going to always offer us that certainty and coherence, okay? In this world we inhabit, so much is beyond us. In all things, we don't know as much as we think, right? We, We just don't. We need to be willing to be more humble, like the quantum physicists who, who, who are saying, yeah, you know, we get this to a degree, but there's still a lot we don't understand. I think that's the posture we all need to be willing to take in more things. And wisdom is really telling us to admit it's okay to not know what we don't know. Now, if we go back to the start of this whole wisdom series, uh, you'll remember we, we unpacked this concept, and it's continued to come up as we've gone through the book of Proverbs, as we went through the book of Ecclesiastes, and now as we end the book of Job, and that's this concept of the fear of the Lord, okay? So as a bit of a, you know, a bookend on our wisdom series, we're actually not quite done with it. Next week, we're gonna, we're gonna start a four-week uh, sermon series in another wisdom literature book, uh, the, the book of Song of Songs, but it, that's a little bit different, <laughs> okay? So we're, we're gonna kind of put a bookend on a lot of stuff we've been talking about in this wisdom series here, and that's this, that Job ends, the place that Job comes to at the very end is the place where Proverbs began, with the fear of the Lord as the sort of foundation, the, the entry point into wisdom. And you remember we talked about uh, in, in Proverbs, in, in chapter one, verse seven, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And again, in verse, uh, chapter nine, verse 10, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If we wanna know what wisdom is, it starts with a posture of humility, of saying, God is in a place that we don't occupy, and we have to set our hearts right towards him to say, we just, there's a lot of stuff we don't understand. Now, I'm leaving some stuff on the cutting room floor here, and I really apologize for that. There's stuff in Job that would be awesome to get through if we were gonna spend some more time in it, but I do want us to end it here, um, okay? This, this whole idea of our series, that wisdom comes from multiple lenses, and it helps us to read Proverbs in light of Job, and Job in light of Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes in light of, of Proverbs, and all these different things together. What, what we've seen, what we continue to come back to is that all these books point to the fact that wisdom is premised on the fear of the Lord. And um, 
the, the, what, 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 we're, what we're telling ourselves is that coherence and certainty, we can't have those fully. And so we have to start with the right posture towards God. That leads us to true wisdom. But you might be asking yourself at this point, well, is that it? Like, is our answer in tragedy or when we don't understand things to just say, you know, we don't know what's gonna go on and God's not gonna give us any answers to anything? Like God just, he doesn't care. He just wants us to sort of, you know, sit with that. And sometimes the answer to that is actually yes, okay? But I don't think that that's the answer, right? That, that we get no certainty, we get no coherence, that nothing makes sense for us, right? Um, in fact, I would actually say that our longing for certainty and coherence to make sense of our situations, those are not bad things. Those are actually put in us by God. But the problem is, is that we often find ourselves looking for them in the wrong places, trying to root them in our own maybe wisdom, right? Trying to build a system for the only way that this can make sense is, is how I understand the world, like what Job is doing, okay? But like in Job, God doesn't remain silent forever, and in fact, I would say he gives us exactly what we need as we sort of come to this place of wisdom. And, and, and that's to trust him in, in the mystery of everything that's going on, but to trust that there's more to it than that. But we have to move outside of Job to get that fuller picture. And in the book of Ephesians, I wanna go here to, to here, we actually see the Apostle Paul talking about this mystery of God's will, this thing that has been hidden. And if you look at the Greek word there for mystery, mysterion, um, it, it's not like a, you know, it's like a mystery like in a, you know, a, a puzzle room or something like that, right? Where like if you just follow the clues, you'll get to it. It's something that's hidden from us, something that's outside of our view, something that's kind of like what's going on in the book of Job, right? In God's space, something is going on that Job is completely unaware of, right? It's hidden from him. That's a little bit what's going on in, in the book of Ephesians when he, uh, Paul talks about this mystery of God's will. It's something that's not previously re- revealed, okay? But... The whole point of what Paul is talking about in chapter one is that God has actually made this clear to us. Something has been made clear to us. Something has been revealed to us. We find this in, in chapter one, verses 17 to 19. Paul says this, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now, I highlighted a couple of words in here, and I want to talk about those real quick, okay? So first of all, Paul talks about how he wants the Ephesians to have wisdom, he wants them to come to this place of understanding, that, that, that wisdom, this, what we've talked about, some things are hidden, and we have to trust God in that. We have to start there and walk in that posture. But when we do that, wisdom paves the way for something else called revelation. Revelation is God giving us something. It is him taking something that was once hidden and revealing it to us you know, so that we can see it. We can have an answer. We can have his coherence or certainty that he wants us to have and apply to what we're going through. Giving us a glimpse of what he's up to. Pulling back the curtain, at least to a degree, so that we can see clearly what he wants us to. And when Paul talks about revelation, what he's talking about is the revelation of Jesus. This thing that was once hidden at one point from Job in particular, from many others in the Old Testament, has been now revealed to us, the purposes that God has in the world. And what this does is it really sets up to us, I think, the number one rule of Christianity, or at least a really important rule of Christianity, which is that is this, when we wanna know who God is 
and we want to know what God is up to in the world, we have to start with Jesus because that's what's been revealed to us most fully. That's the answer that God wants us to have, right? The rest of the Bible is there for us to learn more about God, but we have to start with the pl- at the place that God has revealed most fully to us. So if we want to know who God is in our suffering, in our tragedy, in our pain, if we want to know what he's up to, we got to start with Jesus. And we get some certainty there. There's some that we don't get, right? Our questions that we often want to have answered, things like, you know, why did this happen, right? What's God's policy? Why did this happen to me, right? These remain hidden from us most of the time, okay? Just the revelation of Jesus does not offer us those answers, but it might point us to to, to ask ourselves, maybe we're asking for answers to the wrong questions. Maybe we need to ask for answers to the right questions, and the right questions are formed around Jesus. The right certainty, the right coherence that we're looking for has been revealed to us in the person of Jesus. And once we you know, get ourselves to that place, some things start to become clear to us. Some things start to make coherence of our situation. Right? There's enough certainty for us, the certainty that we need. The answer to questions like, you know, I'm in the midst of tragedy right now. Does God love me still? Well, the answer is yes, right? If God sent his son to die for us, to enter into our suffering, our brokenness in, in the world that we live in, the answer has to be yes to that, right? That God loves us. Um, does God understand? Well, well yes, he does, to the point of bleeding himself, to, uh, the, you know, to, 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 to knowing what it's like for us to even ask hard questions, right? If you go, uh, Jesus, the night before he was crucified, he's in a garden asking God, you know, is this really what we gotta do? Is this, is this, you know, is this, is this how it's gotta, gotta work? Right, he, he finds himself asking similar questions to what, what, we, what we might ask, right? He, he finds himself in that place. He finds himself weeping because of the brokenness of the world. If, when his friend Lazarus dies, Jesus he does heal him, but he stops to just weep first. He takes some time to just grieve and lament that, right? Th- this shows us that God understands our, us when we w- grieve and lament, right? When we weep ourselves, God gets that. He's been with us in that. That's what is revealed to us in Jesus. And what also is clear to us that, is that God is doing something about our pain and the pain in the world. The answer to that is a resounding yes, right? And again, we don't always understand everything that he's up Okay, but and that's part of the point, though, right? That God is still beyond us, even in His answer. It, 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 right? We don't always understand everything about it, but it's still an answer, and we can still believe that there is power in it. And that's the other thing that Paul talks about in verse 19. And so, what we so often forget, and we find ourselves sometimes overtaken in the in the point of of suffering or or of dis, um, uh, uh, of needing to make sense of things, place of like despair, of nihilism, of rage, of self pity, of sometimes arrogance, right? When we're trying to build our own certainty from things, right? We can be reminded and believe that there are other forces at work in the world too, right? When we feel like rabbits are just going crazy in the garden. Right? We can believe that there's something else at work in the world too, right? because of what God has done in Jesus. The same God who spoke out of a whirlwind right, to demonstrate his power and to remind us that he sustains all things in creation okay, to a level that we will never understand, that God holding all that power is at work in Jesus to do something about the evil and the tragedy and the suffering that we find ourselves in. And that power 
has been re- unleashed into the world too. We can find hope and certainty in as we look at Jesus. These are forces and power of resurrection and redemption, of comfort and empathy and understanding, of mercy and grace, forces of sacrifice, of healing for those who are sick, who are blind, who are poor, of giving dignity to those who are lesser than or seen as lesser than in the world, giving them dignity that they currently don't have in the broken society that they live in, of hearing cries for help, and ultimately forces of love and restoration. That's revealed to us in Jesus. That's the certainty and coherence to make sense of things that God is giving us. Again, it's not always what we're looking for, but it's what we need. And that's why God has given it to us, okay? And so when we find ourselves in a place like Job where we want to make sense of things, we're looking for wisdom, let's start with wisdom by being willing to say, there's a lot we don't know and be okay with that and then look to God's revelation of Jesus, the answer that he has, he has entered into our suffering and he is doing something about it and he loves us. Let's pray to close this and then we'll enter into a time of communion and worship. God, we thank you that we don't have to know everything. There is so much that is beyond us in the world, God, and um, we're just thankful that you sustain it all in your wisdom and power despite the fact that we can't grasp that. God, give us wisdom so that we can uh, be comfortable sitting in that, Lord, and being okay with it. Um, but also uh, a desire for revelation, to look at what you have given us in your son Jesus, God. And, and while it doesn't answer every question, it answers the questions that we're supposed to be asking, Lord. Help us to ask those right questions so that we can find your yes in your son Jesus, God. Whether we're in places of suffering ourselves, whether we're walking with someone who finds themselves in suffering, um, or we are just ruminating at, we're we're asking the question of where you're at in the world, Lord. Help us to, to root that all in your son Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen.